The king is gone. Good luck to the king. Now let's move on. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at COSI, this is Columbus on the Record. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Kathy Kandiski, Statehouse reporter for the Columbus Dispatch, Karen Kassler, Statehouse Bureau Chief for Ohio Public Radio and TV, Greg Haas, Democratic Strategist, and Leah Sellers, Professor at Ohio Northern College of Law. Welcome to this LeBron-free edition of Columbus on the Record. While Ohio turned its attention to the next home of a basketball player, Governor Strickland turned his attention to John Kasich. Strickland said Kasich's vote in Congress, his votes in Congress, show he was a friend of the rich. So while he was walking over hot coals to take a $100 tax rebate from a minimum wage worker, he wouldn't so much as lift a finger to keep some of the richest, most unpatriotic Americans from slithering off with more than $7 billion in ill-gotten tax giveaways. And so I ask Congressman Kasich, whose side are you on? The Kasich campaign dismissed Strickland's remarks as attack rhetoric. It says Kasich led the federal balanced budget effort and worked with CEOs to create private sector jobs. Karen Kassler, this week Ted Strickland turned towards John Kasich's congressional record, didn't mention Wall Street a whole lot this week. But there were a lot of familiar themes in this second major campaign speech. Some reporters who covered it said it sounded a lot like the first major campaign speech. But what is interesting is to see him coming out with these major campaign speeches when we haven't seen anything major happening in the Kasich campaign. So there are two schools of thought here. One is that he's following the idea of you define your opponent before your opponent can define himself because the polls show that people largely don't know who John Kasich is. Or that Strickland is a little worried, that he's worried about internal polling showing that Kasich is winning, even though traditional pollsters like Quinnipiac are saying that Strickland is winning. So that's trying to figure out where the Strickland campaign is on those two points or which direction they're leading. 52% in the latest Quinnipiac polls, 52% uh, of the people who responded said they don't know enough about John Kasich. The surprising number was among white evangelical Christians, 52% still say they don't know enough about him to make a decision. So. I mean, some of that is, is probably because we're in July. I mean, people just don't care right now. I and mean, people are doing vacations. They're, you know, watching sp sporting events and figures going away and that sort of thing. <laughs> They're not watching elections yet. Mm -hmm. And the traditional, the common, uh, the conventional wisdom was that it wouldn't happen until after Labor Day that you really started paying attention. So maybe that's part well, of it. Well, I, I think mainly, uh, or a big part of it, is to kind of clarify or set the record straight and, and move in steps in terms of what the relationship between uh, Congressman Kasich and Wall Street is and where it originated. And the way to talk about that is to talk about uh, uh, Congressman Kasich's um, um, legislative record as it relates to Wall Street. The ultimate question is why was John Kasich awarded with an, a million dollar a year job uh, by Lehman Brothers after he got out of Congress? The reason was he had a record in which uh, they were reward rewarding him for. I think, I think Ohioans are getting tired of this Main Street, Wall Street rhetoric. I think we're ready to move on from that metaphor. As someone who metaphorically is from uh, Main Street myself, as are many conservatives, uh, it bothers me that I continue to hear this from somebody like Ted Strickland, who under his watch, we lost 400,000 jobs in our state. So when, when you start to think about um, uh, uh, 
why conserv the, the motivation of conservatives uh, to, to say, including John Kasich, to say that any job is better than any government program, that government programs are bad and uh, they can be bad and jobs are better, and, and, um, and I think it's time to let go of this rhetoric. Well, but the point is that as a conservative, you're not the target of the message. Uh, independent voters are, and every poll shows that independent voters have a great deal of frustration with what happened in terms of Wall Street, and that's who the message is aimed at. Um, and so I think ultimately, and, and ultimately, you know, uh, when people talk about the attacks, John Kasich was attacking Ted Strickland before Ted Strickland ever mentioned John Kasich's name. And using distortions like the 400,000 job lost in a time when our economy nationally has, has, has crashed uh, under the Bush administration, we lost millions and millions of jobs nationally. And to hold Ted Strickland accountable for that is, is, is well, really you know, we, we can't blame the Bush administration these got these uh. You know, these records are fair to compare and they are truly very different on a lot of the issues. But the thing that neither of them are talking about that I think probably Ohioans want to hear most about is what they're going to do to create jobs, what they're going to do to turn around the economy, and what they're going to do to fill an uh, $8 billion hole in our state budget. And that's something that neither of these candidates are willing to talk about. You know, they keep talking, you know, it's all this rhetoric, Wall Street, Main Street, all this stuff. You know, I don't think voters really care about that. But at some point, they're going to want to know, what are these guys going to do about jobs and about the budget hole. Jobs was the focus of an ad that was sponsored by the Republican Governors Association where they blamed Ted Strickland for the loss of the NCR jobs out of Dayton. Let's take a look at that ad. 1,250 jobs, gone. NCR? Yeah, Strickland couldn't hold on to them. Moved to Georgia. Fishbein and Novellus moved jobs there too. We lost 400,000 jobs under Strickland. Gotta be a world record. Strickland doesn't get the jobs done. Wonder when ours go. I just want someone to get that phone. <laughs> 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 Leah, uh, where is John Kasich? These ads are you know, fairly effective. They hammer that point home that 400,000 jobs, but we still have not heard a major campaign speech from John Kasich yet. Where is he in this campaign? Well, I, I know it's July, it's but we were saying the same July. thing back in May. It's July, and uh, people, voters, don't, don't care about this right now. And we'll, we'll hear from him as we approach the election. But yes, I am annoyed by the, the slow conversational pace of these, uh, these ads, and also the where have the jobs, or hasn't done the jobs. Well, you know, it's interesting to note about Kasich is that he has, he, he's available if you call, the media calls, they make him available, but pretty much he's taking his, his case directly to viewers on national networks, particularly Fox News. That's where you're most likely to see John Kasich. Are those independents watching Fox News? Uh, yeah. That's the question. That's to a good point. To some degree, although it's, it's largely his audience, um, I, but one thing I want to you know, I, I don't know if there's an in-kind contribution to the National Republican Governors Committee for the for the ad. I hope we've got a Democratic ad we to balance it out. Fair so, ads, yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, I, I I have to agree in terms of the pacing of the ad and the conversational nature. I don't know how they focus group that and, and what they came back with on it. It's 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 unique or a little bit different. Uh, although the message is very similar to a lot of stuff that voters have been turning off now for a while, um, and the kind of ads that come from both parties that that don't seem to have any 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 uh, real 
hook or anything new in terms of talking about things they're going to do uh, versus just attacking uh, uh, previous records. Okay, let's get to our next topic. The race for U.S. Senate is, well, just a little more senatorial. Rob Portman walked in every parade he could find last weekend and revealed he has raised a lot of money, more than $2.5 million this spring. That means he has $8 million to spend in the last few months of this campaign. Greg Haas, this is the opposite of the governor's campaign. It seems like Rob Portman is the much more visible candidate than Lee Fisher has been since the primary. Since the primary. I mean, certainly um, um, Lee Fisher was far more visible during the primary. Um, um, you know, just the, just the horse race coverage um, uh, when you have a primary amounts to quite a bit. Um, but I think, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a factor of the fundraising, a factor of the money. Uh, um, the, the fact that uh, Rob Portman's raised, uh, you know, close to $10 million now um, is, is a significant factor. Uh, but I think you're seeing kind of a recovery on the Fisher campaign from having to spend a lot of money in the primary. I think that, uh, you know, th they had a decent report for a post-primary uh, report. That's a very difficult time for any candidate to raise money. Uh, and I th so I think, you know, we're going to see a really good race here. And but isn't this exactly the scenario the Democrats didn't want, with Fisher having only a million dollars in the bank to 8.8 .8 million on Portman's side? I mean, this this primary, we kept hearing from the Democratic Party, this is a good thing. It's it's good to get the issues out there. It's good to have a competitive, contested primary. But then we have this situation now where you've got a candidate who's eight times over the other candidate. Well, I, you know, I think that 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 in the end that I think that Rob Portman has to spend a lot more than Lee Fisher in the race, partly because um, there's a name ID advantage, uh, but I also think that, and I you know, think that in that period there's an adjustment after a primary, after you've had to spend money, and you tend to get a bump uh, in the second round and in the next quarter. So I think the next quarter is really the, the, uh, the critical one in terms of fundraising as it, re as it reflects on this race. But you know there is a there is a limit, and we've seen it time time and time again. To do you, when, once you get to four or five million dollars, the difference between eight or ten million dollars and five million dollars. Once you have enough money to get your message out, that's the critical part. And one of the things that I think that Congressman Portman was trying to do is is to shut off uh, Lee Fisher's money. And but we saw a decent quarter con considering that it was just after a primary. But the way that uh, Portman got his money, he got it through a lot of donors, similar to the way Obama got his, and um, it, I think it just shows that, that people support him. A lot of smaller donors versus yes. the larger donors. Exactly. His, his ad that uh, was out this week is focusing on cap and trade and criticizing mm -hmm. cap and trade. Is that going to be, you look at the jobs obviously will be an issue, and then cap and trade, is that the other big issue in the Senate race as we move forward into the fall? I don't know if it's if it's an issue, but it's uh, a certainly good thing that he's against the Waxman cap and trade bill. That's a that's a bad bill for Ohio. Um, and health care probably yeah. is going to come back into play, I would think, well, if it's ever left, arguably. But, but I, I, I have to question this this cap and trade ad because in some ways it leads into the trade issues, in some ways it leads into to uh, Rob Portman's biggest vulnerability. His biggest vulnerability is his service to George W. Bush and exporting tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of jobs from Ohio. And I think that when, when your message and your attack on your opponent is, we're going to lose jobs uh, because of this proposal and how, it make, and how we compete uh, in, in the international marketplace, when you have the kind of record that Rob Portman has, it's not really a good thing. I'm wondering, too, there are a lot of Senate seats that are up for grabs here. And we saw Obama in this last week uh, going to Missouri to campaign. Uh, Kit Bond's seat uh, is up for grabs. And then he's off to uh, with Harry Reid out in Nevada. Is Ohio going to get 
the kind of attention? Are, are they going to write Ohio off? Are they going to pour a lot of money in here with all these other seats that are up for grabs as well? Well, they have to. Oh, I mean, you, you yeah. have got to uh, to maintain the numbers. There's no question that nationally the Republicans will pick up Senate seats. That's a, that's a natural evolution that happens in, 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 in the bounce back of every presidential year in the first midterm election. Uh, but you have to pick up seats in any in any scenario. And so the Democrats nationally don't have any choice. They're going to have to pump a lot of money into their one close. race. It's their one race of, uh, of a real potential pickup. Plus, it's a chance to capture what is now a Republican seat. The Democrats right. a chance right. to capture a Republican seat, which could offset a loss someplace else. Right. Sure. There will be a little less bull on the fall ballot. The livestock care question pushed by the Humane Society will not appear. Governor Strickland brokered a compromise between the Ohio Farm Bureau and the Humane Society. The deal calls for a ban on the possession and sale of wild and dangerous animals. It calls for the government to support tougher puppy mill and anti-cockfighting laws. And it bans future confinement cages for, pen for hens, uh, pigs, and calves. And the compromise is that the current farmers are grandfathered and many of these restrictions do not take effect for a decade or more. Kathy Kandiski, you, you know, this deal kind of makes sense. They, they put these restrictions in place, but the current farmers have a chance to either complete their careers or time to adjust. Right, well, the, right, well, the, the state officials are saying this is kind of a common sense approach. Um, and, and is going to help, you know, farmers stay in business. These rules aren't going to take effect right away, so people aren't going to have to adjust immediately. But the question is, is the governor going to be able to deliver on the promises that he made? You know, two of these promises were new laws, and of course the governor doesn't pass laws, the General Assembly does. And Speaker, um, sorry, Senate President um, Harris has said, you know, he's not promising that these two laws involving cockfighting and puppy mills um, are going to pass. So. I don't think that's a done deal. And of course, uh, the U.S. Humane Society's got all these signatures. They can easily refile this ballot issue next year. But I think the governor should be commended. He did, he did the best he could. He got this thing off the ballot. Mm -hmm. We are not going to have to watch ads featuring suffering animals and such. We'll be able to see more ads about Rob Portman and John Kasich and the like. So, you know, it's a good thing, but it, it remains to be seen whether it plays out as planned. Did that whole incident with the farmer and the, the cow, the, the, the uh, individual who was kicking the cow, I mean, that, that certainly played a role here in, in pushing this forward and, and bringing this to some resolution, didn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. Nobody wanted to see that play out. Although there's been some question now, questions raised about whether that was edited and taken out of context. Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, to follow up on your metaphor, I don't think anybody turned chicken on, on this compromise. <laughs> um, you know, I think that Senator Harris will find out, you know, there's very few of, the, of any of the initiatives or referendums that have been on the ballot have gotten 500,000 signatures with volunteers. Um, usually it's a lot of money that gets pumped into these campaigns. I think Senator Harris will find out that there are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle that care a lot of, uh, about a lot of these uh, issues and, and, and are going to speak up. So I think that while, while I think everybody involved in the negotiations on this recognized what the governor could do and couldn't do, um, the, uh, um, the, the reality of what will happen in terms of the pressure, uh, the constituent pressure as this thing mounts, um, probably makes it a pretty good, uh, pretty good chance that ultimately it will pass. And the Farm Association supports it, including uh, the hog producers and, and others. The, yeah, that was my next question. Well, this, I mean, the argument against this Humane Society ballot issue was it would, it would hurt Ohio's farm industry. Is the, 
the compromise, does it give the farm industry a chance to still succeed and meet these requirements 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road? Yeah, I mean, the farm industry, particularly the hog industry, I think they were already on their way of phasing out some of the same things that are going into would would have, would go into this package, and so they seem to be happy with the with the compromise, keeping the humane society off the ballot for another 10 years. Speaking of off the ballot, the politics of this is that Ted Strickland may have made some friends with the farm association by right. getting this off the ballot and not having them to have to deal with this, and also it keeps perhaps conser some conservative farmers away from the polls, who might have only come out to vote for this. Is this a political win for him as well, not just a compromise, government compromise? I think the first one is, is, a, is a valid point, um, but I think the second one in terms of turnout, I actually think it's, it's, it's probably a loss in terms of the turnout model because, um, you know, there are a lot more people who are members of the Humane Society and, and, and care about these issues than there are of the farmers who, who um, and I also think that a lot of the farmers, and I, I would probably agree with Leah on this, are highly motivated in this election uh, and, and, and are going to be turning out regardless. And, and a lot of the folks who might be a little bit softer in terms of turnout um, uh, would have been likely to turn out and vote on this thing. So I actually think that part was a net loss for the government. So the Humane Society voters might stay home rather than the the ultra-conservative farmer who didn't want government regulations. Interesting, we'll see. Topic four, the group said the group that was called Let Ohio Vote still wants Ohioans to vote just on other things. The group <laughs> formed to put the <laughs> slots at the horse, tracks, the horse tracks plan on the ballot has pulled the question off the ballot saying things have changed. What's changed is that the operators of the four planned Ohio casinos are investing in horse tracks now. Karen Kassler, this was no real surprise once it actually happened, but is this the last time now that Ohio voters will be used as pawns in this whole gaming <laughs> The last time we're going to vote on gambling? <laughs> or oh. not even, or threaten to vote. Or, yeah. We've been doing this for so many years, it'll be so weird to not have a gambling issue coming up. But it was interesting to follow this because my colleague Bill Cohen had been following this for a while, that this was something we had been expecting, you know, the anti and the pro uh, slots at tracks. Uh, sides to come out and start campaigning and nothing was happening and nothing was happening. So there was, you're right, there was a little bit of suspicion after a while that maybe this was going to get pulled from the ballot. So it, it is interesting to see where everybody fell on this because nobody's ever known where Let Ohio Vote got its money. The group that put the petition drive together has never disclosed. They've just said it came from this Virginia group. The Virginia group has never disclosed where it got its money. So we don't know, but we can certainly assume since, you know, Beulah Park is being bought by a casino interest and there's a track in Toledo that's being bought by a casino interest that maybe there might have been a connection here. The critics say there was a connection. Yeah, might. Mm -hmm. yeah. But um, now you have to wonder about Strickland's connection. What's he hiding when he's saying that he's not going to uh, go forward with the VLTs because he wants to get a uh, declaratory judgment from a court? Uh, that just doesn't make sense well, when he had the, uh, you know, it's prepared uh, less than a year ago to, to go forward with an well, executive but, order. But Maybe he got a new but lawyer. But when the seven members of, of the Ohio Supreme Court um, um, stepped in on this, um, certainly um, there is justification for questioning the, the court order, but more importantly, there is a difference over the amount of money in terms of, of the tax collections. For the governor to play tough on this and try and hold closer or, 
uh, to the original percentage, uh, I think is the real motive behind it. And I, and I commend him for standing tough against these folks and demanding a higher percentage in terms of the amount of collections and the tax on, on uh, the VLTs. But he said he's not going forward because he wants to get a legal judgment, a legal uh, entry. Not, he hasn't said anything about the latter, what you were discussing. And frankly, there isn't anything standing in his way. The Supreme Court case that you refer to, uh, let Ohio vote, that's over. Uh, let Ohio vote is, is had 90 days to get their signatures. They did after some uh, uh, adjustment there. And now, now that time has passed. So. So there's nothing standing in the way of the governor going well, forward. Wouldn't there still be a challenge by the Absolutely. Ohio Roundtable, which Absolutely. is an anti-gambling there, there can always be a legal challenge to anything, and, and the governor and does. What I'm saying is, less than a year ago, he was he signed an executive order and it was prepared, notwithstanding the possibility of a legal challenge. But I think outside forward. of the partisan uh, bickering uh, potential, I think the fact that the governor burnt by a court order might it might be wise of him to at least pursue that direction in terms of uh, protecting uh, uh, the direction that he chose to take on this, but do not ever forget that anybody who's in any kind of p leadership position, an administrative position, does negotiate, and they don't always show all their cards right away. Uh, and the fact is that, that there is pressure to lower the percentage to the favorable tax percentage that the casinos got um, by the VLTs, and the governor uh, uh, demanded initially of a 50% uh, tax on, on those VLTs, and that's a lot better than 33%. But Kathy's no questioning. The governor's got to go for as much money as he can get on this. I mean, look at the budget we're facing. But the longer he delays, instead of getting 50% or going for 55% of whatever it might be, that's six more months of no casino, no slot machine revenue to help solve that state budget. How long can he wait? I don't know. I mean, do you think he might wait till after the election? Oh. Just guessing. That's I never don't happened know. before. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> he was ready to go forward in December, and the only thing that changed between then and now is that the casinos ha are able to build in Ohio. Well, which, which is a big factor, by the way. But but again, outside of the back and forth, I think the governor's doing the right thing in terms of holding the line on on the on, on the on the tax collections. Okay, let's get to our uh, final topic. Nearly a quarter of a billion dollars was at stake at the Ohio Supreme Court this week. Justices will decide if the state had the authority to use tobacco settlement money for purposes other than programs to stop smoking. Leah Sellers, the anti-smoking group, argued this, is, this tobacco money was like a pension fund. The state had no right to dip into that to pay for other things in the state budget. Is that a good argument? Well, we'll see. The Supreme Court's going to decide uh, that, that question uh, very soon, I hope, before uh, the September 15th uh, budget deadline, so mm -hmm. we know where what's happening with that money. But essentially what happened in this is that uh, back in 1998, Betty Montgomery went after Big Tobacco, and she won She uh, won $10.1 billion in, in settlement funds, as did other attorneys generals from across the nation. Mm -hmm. she, brought that, uh, she, she brought the money home. The Governor Taft then set up a joint commission, bipartisan commission, to decide what to do with the money. Most most of the money went into things like building schools and investing in technology, but a very small percentage, 3% uh, of it, um, went to this fund that is supposed to keep people from starting smoking and also help addicts who are who are smoking. Two hundred forty million yeah. of it. The state did everything they could. The legislature at that legislature at that time did everything they could to separate this money out and to keep it from future assemblies raiding it. Mm -hmm. And now, uh, in two thousand eight, the assembly needed the money. They raided it. The question is. Uh, c can they keep it separate? It's ultimately a, a legal question you know, for the Supreme Court to about decide. Precedent here, mm -hmm. which is if, like Leah said, they separated it out so they try and protect it. Mm -hmm. If the Supreme Court 
rules in favor and says, yes, the state can use this money for something else, I think the question raises, well, what other, I think this came up in court this week, what other so-called protected funds are open to, you know, being s snatched up? I, I think that's a valid question, and I think that's one of the more interesting aspects of this case as to what precedent it might set should we get a ruling I'm like a that. I'm a big admirer of Betty Montgomery, but to give her credit for the, the tax collections is a, is a real stretch. In fact, it was Skip Humphrey who organized the attorney generals across Ohio, and the first attorney general to join him was Lee Fisher. Um, and they fought. In fact, later down the road, as other attorney generals were elected, they backed off of many of the demands. But the most important thing to remember about this money is the chief argument was how much states had had to pay in terms of health care over a long period of time. So when you talk about retributions, when you talk about the money and, and where it ultimately should go, I think there's a fair argument that, that some of this is to pay for past expenditures over a long period of time that, that states have had to pay out in terms of health care penalty. Um, but I, I ultimately think that, that there has to be some recognition that actually in 2006, um, um, when, when we were trying to deal with the end of the Taft budget, uh, that was the first time that, that steps were taken uh, uh, to raid uh, uh, the um, uh, tobacco money. And I think that we've got probably um, a fair challenge here in, term, in court in terms of what happens with this money. Uh, and I think there's a very fair argument on both sides as, as to the proper um, uh, appropriation of it. All right, let's get to our final sh uh, parting shots, our off-the-record segment. Leah Sellers, you're up first. You said no LeBron, but my, my comment is about uh, jobs. And we lost a big job in Ohio uh, this week. We lost Le LeBron James's job, uh, uh, probably the highest-paying job in Ohio. Uh, I predict that unless we uh, radically change our tax policies in this state, make it more uh, uh, an economically uh, friendly climate for businesses, and high net worth individuals that will continue to hemorrhage jobs in our state. Okay, Greg. Um, well, I'm tempted to make a crass uh, prediction about my book, The Butcher's Thumb, <laughs> which is available <laughs> on Amazon.com, <laughs> uh, and, it, and it's a novel, and uh, I p folks can find it there. Uh, but I, um, but more than any, I think the, the core prediction I'd like to make it, from my heart, I'm letting my heart lead me on this, but I think in a few years, like a lot of athletes, LeBron will come home and be back wearing <laughs> a Cavs uniform. How long are we going to have to wait for that? That Three one. national championships. <laughs> <laughs> Karen. Continuing the LeBron-free, free, free uh, yes. experience here. The w real big winner, I think, here in this was Dan Gilbert. Uh, he wrote an impassioned letter to Cleveland fans and to all of Ohio talking about how LeBron was narcissistic. He deserted Ohio. He, uh, cowardly betrayal. Dan Gilbert's the most popular guy in Ohio for many people right now, and he could run for governor with uh, the way that he has addressed people who are very angry and be very bitter about this. And Kathy. Um, I'm going to make a prediction about grizzly moms. I'm going to predict <laughs> that she will not be a presidential candidate in the 2012 presidential race, um, despite all the r all we're hearing this week about that. Darn. Sarah Palin, Sarah Palin right? Yes. All right. And I'll just note that Thomas Edison, who won the statue competition, LeBron was in Ohio longer than Thomas Edison was, so we should get a statue for LeBron to put it at the Capitol. Oh, that's going to go over real well. Yeah. <laughs> that's Columbus <laughs> on the record for this week. Please check us out online. We're on Facebook and on Twitter. For our crew, for our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week.